Welcome everybody, it's good to have you with us. If you're visiting one of our sites for the first time, or if you've signed on to this YouTube channel for the first time, it might create the impression that I'm an authority, that I'm better than you because I'm standing up here talking and you're listening. It might create the impression at one of our sites that the people around you are better people because they seem to have it all together, they know what's going on, they seem to be better at doing this whole church thing than you. I just want to reassure you that that is simply not the truth. Every one of us is in the same boat, and this is what we're going to discover today. Shall we open in a word of prayer? Father God, we thank you that you choose to reveal yourself to us that you make yourself known to us. And we pray that you would do that today because we want to be captivated by you and by your beauty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My dad used to have a pickup truck when I was a little boy and often he would offer to do uh, favors for people. He would carry heavy furniture or other things around for them. And so this one particular day, we went to a friend's house to help him move a freezer so that it could be repaired. Now the freezer was located in a very dark and gloomy pantry. And so my dad's friend said to us, hang on a moment, let me just go and get a torch so that you guys can see what you're doing in here. And when he came in with the torch and shone it in the room, he suddenly felt very embarrassed. He said, my word, I just hadn't realized how grimy and filthy the floor is in here. And often that's the reality. We think that maybe a room is clean enough, but it's only when the light shines on it that the reality is exposed. And it's the same with our human condition. One of our problems, and, and I would say it's our biggest problem as humans, is that we believe that we're basically good. And this explains why sociologists say that human problems can be solved by man's efforts alone through things like education, social reform, wealth creation. Now don't get me wrong, these things are good, but they do not get to the heart of the problem, which is a problem of the heart. You see, the human heart is not basically good. And if you believe, or if I believe, that I'm basically good, then I'm gonna, not going to see the need to be saved by the power of God. And this is what Paul does in the start of the letter to the Romans. He, he starts to shine a light on our human condition. And let's face it, it's pretty uncomfortable. It seems terribly negative. But Paul is saying, guys, he's wanting to emphasize, in fact, you do need to be saved. And he launches his letter by saying that it will be all about the special message of good news, which he calls the gospel. And he says that this gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so, to show us that we're not basically good, Paul draws our attention to the mess in the world. And after all, if humans were basically good, surely we would expect to see things getting progressively better on earth. But they aren't. Things are getting worse. And the reason why they're getting worse is because humans have refused to worship God, but have rather replaced Him with other things, worshipping those things instead, 
like money and power and comfort and sex and so on. You, you might say, look, I, I don't worship those things. But the truth is, and I've seen it in my own life, that often I go through periods when I value those things more than I value the presence of God in my life. And even though creation points to a creator with awesome qualities, everybody, Paul says, can look around and see there's got to be something behind all of this. We haven't chose to seek that creator, but rather to ignore him. And to be honest, part of the reason for this is that every human wants to be his or her own boss. And that rebellion leads to all the pain and the suffering that we see in the world. But God is not indifferent to the injustice of pain and suffering. And so he pours out his wrath as punishment for injustice. What does his wrath look like? During a man's life on earth, God hands people over to a downward spiral of sin. He hands them over to the consequences of increasing sin. In other words, he says, if you don't want me, have what you do want and experience the horror of that. Now, this is not the only way that God's wrath, his punishment for injustice, is revealed. Yes, we experience it on earth as God hands us over to that downward spiral of sin. But then Paul tells us about the day of wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's a quotation from chapter 2, verse 5. Righteous judgment means judgment that is good and fair and just. And of course, we always want that. We want, we want justice to be done. We see it in, in all of our movies. We see it in, in the different episodes that we watch in television. Often it's about finding out who did the wrong thing so that justice could be done. And the day of God's wrath is a particular day, and I'm quoting here again, when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 16. thing is, Paul tells us, because God's judgment is inescapable, this is what we've learned over the weeks, righteous and impartial, no one is going to be, de be declared innocent. And then Paul talks about different groups of people to show that this is the case for everybody in mankind. He says religious people who participate in church, in organized religion, if you like, whilst keeping God at arm's length and valuing other things more than God, they will be declared guilty. You're not good because you know the Bible. You're only good if you obey the Bible perfectly. So such people are going to be judged on their actions rather than their knowledge of God's standards. And they will be condemned. They will not be declared innocent. And then he goes on to another group of people. He says, good people who don't hold with organized religion because they have their own code of conduct. They will also be found guilty according to their own standards because they don't keep them. And we all know that. I've got my own standards, but I haven't kept my own standards perfectly, let alone God's standards. And finally, he says, the Jews 
will be found guilty because they haven't followed the law. They will not be treated with favor simply because they know the law and because they have been circumcised in the flesh as a sign of the covenant that they have with God. In fact, Paul introduces the idea that to be put right with God, every human being, whether they are a Jew or not, needs to have, now listen to this because it's so significant, we need to have a circumcision of the heart. Something that cannot be done by man, that can only be done by God. And folks, this is staggeringly significant because man's problem is a problem of the heart and God alone can deal with it. We are not basically good, but God can solve the problem. And so this brings us quite a long summary, but I think it's important to reflect on these things again, brings us to today's passage. And Paul starts off by dealing with some objections to what he has been saying. So let's start reading today's passage, chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness, another objection coming up here, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I'm speaking in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? So objections to the gospel, and we're going to have a look at that in a little bit more detail shortly. Let's carry on reading. What then? He's coming to a conclusion. What then? What can we conclude after this long argument? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all of humankind, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and then he does a whole lot of quotations from the Old Testament here. None is righteous. No, not one. We're all in the same boat. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A very damning picture of humankind. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... 
no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, Paul anticipates that there are going to be some objections to what he's just been saying. So let's have a look at those objections to the gospel message. And to be upfront with you, I'm not going to unpack all of these objections today. There are three, three reasons for this. Number one, although I could explain the objections, they're very specific to the Jews that Paul was addressing in verses 17 to 29. And so you probably wouldn't find them relevant today. Number two, Paul's arguments here um, are very concise. And the reason why they're concise is because he was wanting to save space. It was very expensive. The materials for writing letters were very expensive to buy. And so you, you, you had to make sure that everything was very condensed. And so the upshot is that explaining how Paul counters the objections is actually going to take quite a lot of time. And then thirdly, we're going to return to these objections later when in the letter when Paul sheds some more light on them. However, there is one thing that I would like to emphasize, namely that we should always anticipate objections to the gospel message. Paul anticipates them and he deals with them. Also, if you're exploring faith, you're going to have lots of questions. You're going to have lots of objections. So we should anticipate these objections to the gospel. And if you have your own ones, don't be afraid of them. And we need to deal with these objections respectfully. We should do that. We should take time to hear and to understand the objections and the perspectives of other people. You don't necessarily need to agree with them, but you must try to understand and to show that you've understood their objections. And once you've done that, try to give answers. And at Harvest, we absolutely value your objections and your questions. We want you to come and ask questions, by whether it's by email, by WhatsApp, setting up a coffee date. Please come. If you are genuinely concerned, come and chat to us. But before we move on, let's just have a look at one objection stroke answer that I think will be helpful. It says on your screen there, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much, in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews would have asked Paul, well, you know, what is the advantage of being a Jew if you're telling us that knowledge of the law and, uncirc and circumcision has no value? And Paul answers that the law and the Old Testaments were of inestimable value because they were the inspired word of God. Unlike the Gentiles, who didn't actually have them, they had to rely on what God had imprinted on their consciences. The Jews had had God's words spelt out for them in great detail. And of course, the implication is that the law and the Old Testament pointed forward to the ultimate solution, the gospel message, that man can only be saved by an internal change of heart, and that only by the hand of God. And so... If you tend to rely on the fact that you know the Bible to earn some sort of favor with God, you're on the wrong track. Knowing the Bible will not earn 
God's favor. Only what the Bible points to can do that. A change of heart brought about by the hand of God. And this brings us to the next section of scripture that we're looking at today, in which Paul concludes this argument that he started in chapter 1, and he underlines it with numerous quotes from the Old Testament. Why? Because it's God's inspired word, and it's pointing towards the good news. So let's have a look at the conclusion of this lengthy argument. Paul writes in verse 9, what then? In other words, what shall we conclude then? That's how it's interpreted in the NIV. Paul has been saying, or take human beings in general, we could tell that there was a God by looking at creation. But did we explore further? Did we seek this God? No, we didn't. Instead, we chose to replace him with other things and to worship those things instead, which led to all sorts of evil in the world. And so godless human beings are not off the hook. Take people who claim to be good. They know what is good and evil because God has imprinted it on their consciences. But do they do what they know to be good? No, they don't. So they're not off the hook. And then Paul says, take people who claim to be special because they have the Bible. They know good from evil because God has actually spelled it out for them in writing. But do they do what they know to be good? No, they don't. So they're not off the hook. What shall we conclude then? The first thing that he concludes is that every human being is under the power of sin. Look at verse 9. He spells it out there. He says, we are under sin. In other words, under the power of sin. Sin has the power to control every human being until God has changed his or her heart. And then Paul describes what being under the, the power of sin actually looks like. We could call this the human condition to which the good news provides the solution. Being under the power of sin means that sin is ungodly, pervasive, and universal. Let's look at each of those headings. Ungodly, pervasive, and universal. We're, we're talking about the human condition now, the, the, the condition that we all find ourselves to be in at the start. First of all, ungodly. Folks, at the heart of your condition and my condition is a refusal to seek God. What does he write there? He says, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, verses 11 and 12. And then he goes on to write, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you find it difficult to answer to others? <laughs> Do you find it difficult to, to, to answer to God? You know, everybody wants to be their own boss. We disrespect God by doing what he forbids, by valuing other things more than him. I know that I do this. And this, folks, is the essence of sin. This is at the core of our human condition. We want to be our own bosses. We don't want God to be boss. And that's what happens. Ungodly. Pervasive. 
look at all the different members of the body that Paul lists here. He talks about the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the eyes. Why does he do this? He's emphasizing the point that sin has pervaded every aspect of our human condition. Sin has tainted every part of our humanness. Your body was given to you by God so that you could serve other people and make him famous. Instead, we've rebelled against God and despite our best efforts, we regularly hurt other people. And sometimes, sadly enough, we do it intentionally. And now, when you look at Paul's description here, what he is not saying is that every man is as bad as he could be. Sin has taken over each person to a different degree. But what he is saying is that sin has taken over to the same extent in every person. So if you take uh, Hitler and Epstein, for example, they allowed sin to control more of their lives than any of us to a different degree. And I certainly hope that is the case. But you can be sure that sin has twisted and tainted your humanness to the same extent as it has done it to them. Sin pervaded Hitler as much as me. Sin is more of a condition or state than what we do or do not do. Now, why would Paul say that there is no one who does good? You know, someone says, well, that's a little bit unfair. That's a bit harsh. What he means is that until your heart has been changed by God, the pervasiveness of sin will taint even the good things that you do. For example, the Bible teaches that the motive defines the morality of the deed. If I help a family stuck in poverty, that's a good thing, right? Of course, it'll make a difference to that family. But if I do it in order to look good, it shows that sin has pervaded my will. If I swamp that family with cash handouts, I could destroy that poor family, showing that sin has pervaded my wisdom and my knowledge. Do you see what I mean? We all need a complete makeover before we can start to do true good. So sin is ungodly. Sin is pervasive. It is also universal. Every human, past, present and future, starts in the same condition. Paul states this both positively and negatively and he repeats it in this passage to emphasize the point. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now remember that Paul is coming to a conclusion. What is it? Well, firstly, that every human being is under the power of sin because of the state that he or she is in. Sin's effect on us is dreadful because it means that we exclude God. That's at the heart of our condition. It means that we have been corrupted. Every aspect of our humanness, the way God intended us to be, has been corrupted by sin. And it's happened 
to all of us. We are all in the same boat. It's universal. And so for this reason, no human is good enough to be put right with God by obeying the law. This is the conclusion that he's coming to. Every human being is under the power of sin. Therefore, no human is good enough to be put right with God. Look at verse 19. It'll be on your screen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What does Paul mean here? Who were those under the law? It was the Jews, right? So how can the law stop the mouths of the likes of us? We, who were Gentiles, not under the law. This is how we explain it. If the Jews, who are God's special covenant people, cannot keep the law, then it follows that the Gentiles, who are taught much of the law by their consciences, will not avoid God's condemnation either. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Whether it's by the Bible or whether it's by your conscience, you will be held accountable to God. I will be held accountable to God. And we will be found guilty of both doing wrong and failing to do right. We will not be found innocent based on our past record. The law is there to alert us to our own sinfulness, but not to deal with it. The law is like a light bulb. It illuminates the mess in the room, but it is useless for cleaning it up. You need a broom to do that. Problem is, because humans know good from evil at a basic level, we think that that's enough. Let me assure you, it isn't. We think we're basically good. Let me assure you, we aren't. We think that because there is a light in the room, everything is okay. Folks, we need to take an honest light look at what that light is revealing. Perhaps you're beginning to see that having a light bulb isn't enough to clean up the mess in the room. In fact, the more you hear about God's standards and your condition, the more hopeless the situation seems. And it will if you try to be good without getting your heart changed by God. We need to be changed on the inside. We need a circumcision of the heart, not an external circumcision. Every one of us, folks, let me emphasize this, every one of us starts in the same boat, waiting for the day we will be declared guilty by God, according to His standards, because we are in a state that makes it impossible for us to meet even our own standards, let alone God's. I'm afraid we don't start off being basically good. But thank God for His kindness. Thank God for His love, for His commitment to save us and to restore us. Thank God that Paul begins the next section of Romans with a massive but. But, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is 
a way to be put right with God. And that's what we're going to be hearing about in the next episode. Shall we pray? Father God, we are immensely grateful that Paul doesn't pull his punches, that he brings a light on our human condition. And I pray that every one of us would be challenged today to see that in, with our own efforts, we cannot be put right with God. Because we've all started in that place of being under the power of sin. We all have a tainted record, a record on which we will be declared guilty. Father, help us to see these things. And may it give us a taste. May it give us hope for the good news that is coming. What comes after that big but? The fact that there is a righteousness that comes from God apart from our record. Isn't that wonderful news, Father God? We're so immensely grateful to you for this. We thank you that although we have been in the dark, that the dawn is coming. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again next week when Craig is going to be unpacking the wonderful good news, the dawn that comes after the darkness. Goodbye for now, and we'll see you next week.